Today on the Standing on the Shoulders of Giants podcast, we are going to go through hackers. We're going to talk about hackers in the Matrix, navigating the labyrinth of code and chaos. Specifically, we're going to dive into the history, the current status. I'll make some future predictions about hacking and cybersecurity. We'll also understand some of the current news and events, things that have happened previously, and actually get into some understanding and even misunderstanding of exactly what this this realm is all about. This particular one is somewhat near and dear to my heart, as some of you may or may not know. When I was a youngster, specifically 17 years of age, the FBI came to my door and paid me a little visit. Their accusations were that I had, let's just say, infiltrated certain electronic assets, computers and networks, on the Department of Justice, Department of Defense, and NASA. Lucky for me, there were no charges ever filed, and I'm glad that happened when I was a minor, I'll put it that way. Regardless, it was a formative experience in my life, to say the least, but I have been a proponent and actually kind of messing around, for that matter, with computers and cybersecurity since I was 12 years old, so all the way back in 92, so when I was quite a, quite a youngster, to say the least. So this one's pretty near and dear to my heart. So as we dive in, one of the more important things that we'll probably have to do today is actually understand the basics. Understanding hacking, highlighting its complexity, the multiple aspects of it, understanding some of the terminology, and and we'll discuss a particular event. So with that in mind, let's, let's go ahead and dive in. In my view, hacking is effectively making a system do something that it wasn't designed to do in the first place. Now, this conflicts with some other people's definition of a so-called hacker, but I I use the traditional definition of someone who's doing something in or around cybersecurity or computer security or electronic security. And the specific reason is, these days, hackers oftentimes become interchangeable with someone who is a software engineer or is able to code. Uh, I would strongly disagree with this definition, but of course, everybody's entitled to their own opinion on things. I believe, again, hacking is simply making a system do something that it wasn't designed to do in the first place. So for instance, if you're able to get your toaster to properly cook a steak, I would say that you've hacked the toaster because normally they're not going to cook a steak very well, and if they do, it's very poorly, but if you can actually get it and modify it such that it can cook a steak properly, I would argue that you've managed to hack the toaster. A bit of a more traditional definition would be unauthorized access. Unauthorized access to a given system, usually electronic. That would be what most people would define as as hacking or, or hackers. And there are different types of hacking and different types of hackers. Specifically, we say white hat, black hat, and gray hat hackers. I'm not really sure where the actual hats come from, but effectively, it really depends on the actual type of hacking that you're attempting to do. So a black hat hacker is the traditional one that most people would would identify with. This is a person who is attempting to gain unauthorized access to a system for one reason or another. Now we'll go into some of those reasons later on, but regardless, a black hat is someone who's attempting to get unauthorized access to a system. A white hat hacker tends to be someone who's doing the exact opposite of a black hat hacker. They are attempting to block hackers from access to a given system. These days, a lot of times we would call these computer security professionals among other things, but that's traditionally what a white hat hacker would be. 
A gray hat hacker is someone who dabbles, as you may have already guessed, in both fields, where maybe perhaps during their day job, they would be a computer security proponent to stop someone from actually getting into a system, but they may dabble in other things. On top of that, there are also professional gray hat hackers who not only put up defenses to stop people from getting in systems, but also specifically use offensive measures to make sure that no one can get inside of those systems and they attempt to hack those systems with the owners of the system's permission on purpose. They do this to make sure that the systems are actually unhackable because if they can't do it, they believe that it would be very difficult or even impossible for other people to do it. Hence why you have gray hat hacker, sort of a mix and combination between the two. There has been some some fairly interesting developments uh, in the recent years. I'll, I'll go back actually not quite a decade ago, but almost to the Yahoo data breach, which actually occurred in 2013 through 2014, but wasn't actually discovered until 2016. It was discovered and thought that only a few hundred million users had had their details exposed. And when I say, well, only a few hundred million, well, it turns out it wasn't only a few hundred million. It turns out it was three billion. Nearly every single one of Yahoo's users was affected by this, exposing not only their personal data, but their hashed passwords, hashed passwords being an encrypted password that you could eventually crack. But long story short, it's something that you don't normally want out in the open. It did have an impact on Verizon actually purchasing Yahoo. At the beginning, it had a large impact, but eventually they, they mitigated a lot of the fears. But one of the issues and one of the major problems with that is a lot of people would use their Yahoo password for a lot of other services. And therefore, Verizon was quite concerned with obviously having all of this data that they were about to buy out in the open. A secondary piece inside of there is it's a pretty classic example of white hat hacking and black hat hacking. White hat hackers were the ones who ended up putting up the defenses, identifying the breach in the first place nearly two years after it had occurred. And on top of that, being able to smooth over relations with Verizon. Whereas, of course, the black hat hackers were the ones that actually breached it in 2013 and 14 and stole all of that data. But as we go down this path, why don't we jump into a bit of a history of hacking? Hacking goes all the way back to the 60s, technically speaking, but I think we can sort of fast forward to a couple of different incidents. One of them is a gentleman named John Draper, otherwise known as Captain Crunch. Uh, he's reasonably well-known in the hacker scene and community and is sort of famous for his ugh, power massages, I guess he, he called them, during various computer conferences. I would advise you stay away from those. When I say famous, I sort of mean infamous. But regardless... Um, Captain Crunch actually was friends with Steve Jobs back in the 70s. They would end up selling various hacker tools on campuses. One of them in particular that Captain Crunch was famous for was that he identified that if you blew into a Captain Crunch whistle, it was literally a whistle that ended up coming inside of a box of Captain Crunch cereal, that the tone that it unleashed was a perfect 2600 megahertz. The reason why this was important is this was actually a, a tone for the phone company where you could unleash this tone and make it seem like you actually paid for a phone call. That was one of the first instances, although it would be technically hacking. Phone, phone security is actually given a completely different name called freaking or P-H-R-E-A-K-I-N-G, freaking. But as we fast forward from that one, there's another one, and this is actually one of the early hacking instances that occurred in 1998 by a computer scientist known as Robert Tappan Morris, who was actually criminally charged for this, although 
I believe he still to this day maintains it was a mistake and was never meant to escape from the lab, but he basically built a worm, which is now colloquially known as the Morris worm. It infected a gigantic portion of the internet, which was fairly small at that time, but still made its way through just about everywhere. Now, this is something that I want to make clear throughout this particular podcast, which is oftentimes hacking is done via automation and not specific targeting. So if a lot of times people are wondering, why would someone hack my computer? And the answer is, well, there isn't a great reason. The answer is they're only doing it because they trained a program to go hack anything it possibly could and retrieve any data it possibly could. It didn't target you, it targeted everyone. Regardless, the Morris worm was reasonably similar to this and it became a large problem. He was actually criminally charged for that, but ultimately became very well known in the computer world. There has been some transformation, let's just say, in the hacking community from the days of old to present. In fact, there's been quite a bit. A long time ago, it was playful experimentation, which was effectively what it was in the 70s and 80s. Really understanding, how do these systems work? What can I make them do? What are the ins and outs of these systems? And again, a lot of these things weren't built to be secure. It was more security through obscurity, as in you didn't know the system and you didn't understand how it functioned. So hacking was really a way to understand how it functioned because people didn't have access to those systems. However, fast forwarding through the 90s, the 2000s, and of course up to present, there's been a large influx of criminal activity and ethics concerns, specifically one that you could say kind of kicked this off for a number of different reasons was Kevin Mitnick's actions and his subsequent uh, arrest. Now, Kevin in particular had, and I encourage you to go look this up, we won't go through all of it here, but Kevin in particular had some rather famous exploits during the 1990s, although you could also argue that he didn't really hack computers, he mostly hacked people because he wasn't explicitly targeting systems, he was explicitly targeting people who could give him access to said systems. Beyond that, there were even earlier examples than I've just explained. During the 1980s and 90s, there were two groups who effectively went to hacker war with each other which unfortunately and subsequently led to most of their arrests. But in particular, those were the Legion of Doom and the Masters of Deception. And the answer is yes, computer, computer security people and hackers alike have rather interesting names for their groups. And back then it was effectively the Wild West, so you could call yourself whatever you wanted. And there were some pretty wild handles for people who were, who were online back then. This, however, did lead to some interesting developments in the 1990s. In particular, I'll reference one that I actually was an early participant of, although nowhere near the first, and that would be DEFCON. DEFCON is, and for that matter, Black Hat Security. DEFCON and Black Hat Security were created by a hacker named Jeff Moss, and they are computer security conferences that typically happen in Las Vegas every single year, highlighting new, new and exciting developments in the world of ethical hacking, black hat hacking, white hat hacking, and for that matter, just in general meetups of all sorts of, of folks. Oftentimes, even the Federal Bureau of Investigation and the NSA would show up, although sometimes incognito and sometimes not, although both of them have actually presented at both of those conferences since their inception. But this leads to yet another incident, which we should definitely discuss, which is something like the high-profile hacking incident in 2014, which was the Sony Pictures breach. 
This one is actually sort of in hacker lore, and it's got a bit of an issue to it in the sense of initially it was thought that North Korean hackers breached Sony pictures for the, I believe the title of the movie was The Interview, and it was basically a parody and spoof with uh, Seth Rogen, among others, attempting to uh, parody some North Korean interviews and whatnot and kind of make fun of the regime. The odd, (laughs) the specific and odd part about this was that even computer security people didn't actually buy that it was North Korea. A lot of people actually specifically named several people inside of Sony. In fact, Seth Rogen himself, the actor in the movie, also thought it was an inside job. Although eventually the Federal Bureau of Investigation released a warrant for a North Korean national. Regardless, that ended up bringing hacking once again to the forefront and really keeping people's eyes and ears open as these things had started to infiltrate multiple different sectors. Not exactly what we were doing in the 80s and 90s, which was trying to understand the ins and outs of the internet, breaking into systems just to prove that we were either smart or for that matter, smarter than someone else. These days, hacking has really gotten pretty different. Oftentimes these days, hacking is actually done for profit instead of for fun. And as a matter of fact, most hacking these days is honestly is criminal gangs, not just goofy teenagers in their basements. Some pretty interesting stuff, for instance, state-sponsored hacking. We do this in America all the time, as does, excuse me, as do most of the uh, Western world. Uh, China has a large team of hackers, as does North Korea. Um, Russia does as well. There's quite a bit of state-sponsored hacking. One of the biggest ones I think that's important to discuss is something like Stuxnet which is effectively corporate espionage uh, engineered by the NSA. It was a extraordinarily brilliant worm that effectively wormed its way through all sorts of computers, really not actually causing any damage whatsoever, but just looking for more computers to spread to. Eventually, people did find a very obscure piece of code inside of Stuxnet. And what it ended up doing was infiltrating, believe it or not, besides the entire world, It infiltrated computers in Iran in particular. This was arguably the actual target of Stuxnet in the first place because it didn't collect any data from regular people's computers. It just spread to other computers. But the super obscure piece of code eventually caused malfunctions inside of heavy water nuclear reactors inside of Iran, setting their program back decades by ruining these pieces of equipment. Once again, you could argue that this was state-sponsored espionage in an extraordinarily brilliant way to to put a damper on someone else's nuclear aspirations. There's also other ones like ransomware attacks, for instance, WannaCry. This is known as cryptojacking. And what these end up doing is they infiltrate a host computer and they encrypt all the major pieces of data on the computer itself with a strong key. What the hackers end up doing is then once they found out that these computers are encrypted, they basically send demands to the people who own those computers saying, we will give you the key to decrypt your computer if you pay X amount of money, usually in something like Bitcoin. This is known again as crypto jacking and it's a basically a ransom job where they're hijacking all the data and they'll let you have all the data back if you pay them a certain amount of money. There's also been rises because we've sort of been focusing on the negative. Um, We've also had a number of of things come to light in recent 
days of hacking, which is ethical hacking. And there's actually professional certifications for ethical hackers, certified ethical hackers in particular. And on top of that, there are also bug bounties that are out there. Bug bounties are an interesting one where companies actively ask hackers to attempt to penetrate their machines. And if they prove that they have done as much and they ended up telling them how they did it, they will actually get specifically paid an amount of money. Now, again, this, this basically turns hacking into a capitalistic enterprise. And again, early on, it wasn't. The idea was just to test your wits and your smarts against someone else's. It is a quite a boon for companies who want to put bug bounties into place as they can test their services effectively and with lots and lots of people able to penetrate or for that matter, not being able to penetrate. But if they do, it's not only within the law, but it's also going to pay well if they penetrate those systems. They won't go to jail, especially if there's a bug bounty program published, but they'll also get paid. It's an interesting way of businesses sort of taking an offensive position when it comes to hackers. There's also been some really interesting things actually in the media as of recent. I would be remiss if I didn't cite USA's Mr. Robot. In particular, this was a drama that was centered all around a hacker and 99% of everything that they actually did in Mr. Robot was was actually spot on. It was it was pretty impressive. The biggest issue is that for most people and again I'll sort of dive into this. For most people, Mr. Robot was notably interesting because obviously they had some very great actors. The storyline was notably interesting and the hacking pieces were while they were very accurate. They actually represented very, very little of the show. Otherwise, people would end up getting relatively bored. In that particular vein, one of the things that I would discuss as we're talking about the current state of hacking is I oftentimes get asked, how do you hack something? Or what does that look like? Or can you show me how to do this? And the answer to the question is sure, but usually you have to know how to code first. Otherwise, it's going to be I mean, it's effectively saying, you know, am I able to write Shakespeare if I can't speak English yet? And the answer is no, you, you would probably have to learn English first and then, then you can dive into some Shakespeare. But hacking in particular usually requires an intimate knowledge of a system or for that matter, it requires, to be honest with you, dart throwing. And what I mean by dart throwing is something that we just discussed, something like WannaCry or Stuxnet where you basically write a worm. You write a program that propagates itself where security is weak. And where can it go? And the answer is it can go anywhere it's able to go. And that's, again, a lot of times how these things are propagated these days. It's sort of hacking via automation, as opposed to explicitly targeting a, a particular machine or particular enterprise and attempting to get in. How to hack something is you need to make a system do something that it wasn't originally designed to do. And with computers, effectively, there's a number of different ways to do this, but usually the answer is if you can give it unexpected input that it doesn't understand how to handle, usually from that point forward, there is a way into the machine. Regardless, there has actually been even more notable hacking incidents, something like SolarWinds. Now, SolarWinds was basically a company, well, is basically a company that specializes in administration of remote network devices, meaning lots of different networks on lots of different places. 
The scary part about this was that when SolarWinds was hacked, because it had command and control on purpose, because it had command and control of all of these other enterprises, that was the entire business model, when you hacked SolarWinds, you effectively had access to all of SolarWinds clients as well. These are some of the nerve-wracking things when you use services that are not only convenient, but also cheap, like something like SolarWinds or for that matter, any of the clouds. Anytime you're using shared infrastructure, you are potentially susceptible to the weakest link on that shared infrastructure. So there are always things to take care of and watch out for when someone's looking towards computer security and, and for that matter, hacking. But now let's talk a little bit about the future and what hacking is going to look like. And I'm sure that a lot of you knew that this was coming, but AI and machine learning not only are going to be at the forefront, but are already on the forefront of hacking. In particular, when you talk about something like OpenAI's GPT-4 or ChatGPT or any of these things, what we're really talking about is large language models that were trained on various things. I've done a podcast on this. You're free to listen to it. The biggest issue is that large language models don't need to be just trained on English. In fact, they don't really need to be trained on English. If you train a large language model on just code, and as a matter of fact, if you train a large language model on just malware, malware being bad programs, programs designed for hacking, programs designed to break computer security, etc., theoretically, and for that matter, not theoretically, you can ask it to design a specific program for a given system. In particular, if you train it on enough hacking techniques, and for that matter, enough programs that have been written that have been proven to work, and for that matter, enough programs that exist out there, just regular programs that are open source on other people's computers, you actually wouldn't need a tremendous amount of skill to get it to get a large language model that you train yourself, you wouldn't need that much skill to be able to actually ask it to create exploits for given programs or given systems. And again, this is one of the concerns that people have with AI going forward is that it can take someone with very little amounts of skill and turn them into someone with a, with a tremendous amount of skill via a given tool. Well, maybe not skill, but a tremendous amount of power for that matter through a, through a given medium. While it's true that OpenAI took years and hundreds of thousands of GPUs, which are graphical processing units, to train up, and it was extraordinarily expensive, there's not that many hacking programs out there. There's not that many exploits that have been proven to exist. There's not that many differences in the programs that a lot of servers use out there on the internet if you'd like to target them. Training a model to write malware or to write exploits is actually not very far off. In fact, there have been articles on something called, at least today, Worm GPT. Now, I'm not gonna tell you where to go find this, but I've played around a little bit with it, and the truth of the matter is, it doesn't generate very good code, but it's just an alpha. Eventually, someone will come up with a very strong system with no controls whatsoever that will generate just about any code you can think of. And therefore, it could have extraordinarily strong impacts on not only infrastructure, but systems that we take for granted that are potentially, we take for granted that we think are secure to this day. Again, just by asking via an English language prompt to create a particular program to hack another particular program. 
Another potential threat going forward, which again, we've talked about on this podcast with in particular Will Hurley or Worley, potential quantum threat. And that is quantum computing in particular by a lot of mathematicians and a lot of quantum pioneers has been seen as a, well, pun intended quantum leap forward in computing. But not only that, it is possible that some of these quantum computers could break all standard known encryption in a matter of seconds, as opposed to what would take a regular computer or even thousands of computers, literally hundreds or thousands of years to do, with a quantum machine could potentially be done in seconds or even real time. There are some nerve wracking things coming forward about potential threats in quantum computing and what that means and how it could disrupt these computer security standards and standard encryption packages that we actually have working today. That said, on the other side, there has been an absolute rise in the cybersecurity profession in the past decade. As we're talking about the future here, I would argue that we're going to need specialists in computer security and the job statistics in computer security will go through the roof, not only to use AI for computer security, but to attempt to understand how AI can be used on the black hat side and defend against that as well. Additionally, other mathematicians and computer scientists will be needed for advances in encryption and other protective measures, which we take for granted today. I'll make some other speculations in particular that I would argue are probably going to happen in the future which is at some point in time, we are going to see the rise basically of not only automated uh, hacking, which we've already seen with Stuxnet and, and Worms, but I would argue someone is going to couple this with AI such that you end up with a worm that's not only polymorphic, meaning it changes on the fly as things move forward, but it can probably call servers back home, probably AI servers to actually change itself and make itself move forward as counters to the worm are released, it can actually program itself against those counters. I know that sounds scary, but I'm not kidding. There are ways that you could end up designing a program which would end up calling varying anonymous proxies so that, such that you could never trace where it's actually calling. And inside of there, the worm could update itself with the latest things that the, that the AI behind it is actually scraping. Meaning, if the AI detects that there is a new way to wipe out this worm, the AI could basically detect that, write itself a way around this, around the new patch, and again, have that automatically uploaded to the worm as it calls home. So I would argue that going forward, we definitely have some, some work cut out for us in the computer security industry. Not only that, but encryption is gonna need a quantum leap forward. Again, pun intended in the sense of, when we bring encryption over to quantum machines, and for that matter, AI over to quantum machines, we'll need to be able to figure out a set of systems where it's effectively unbreakable on those machines as well. Now, when I say, just to be clear, unbreakable, nothing is actually unbreakable. What I really mean is it's basically extraordinarily expensive and takes a long time because even current encryption is not unbreakable. But with quantum computing, if you could do this a matter of seconds, Again, it becomes very fast and very cheap, especially for state-sponsored actors. Regardless, we'll need a leap forward. So, I hope you've learned something during this particular uh, episode of the podcast. As you can tell, it's pretty near and dear to my heart. I have a big soft 
spot for hackers and hacking. We've kind of talked through some of the past, present, and future. The most important thing, if you're not in this field, is just public awareness, knowledge about cybersecurity and understanding the incidents, where it occurs, and how to protect yourself against those things. In other words, don't reuse the same password. Use very long passwords. They don't necessarily need to be super complex, but long ones are, are always better. The other thing that I would say is if there are any potential feedback, if there's any questions, comments, concerns, please feel free to reach out. Beyond that, thank you so much for joining. I appreciate it. I'd love it if you liked, subscribed, and whatever else on whatever platform you're watching or listening this on, and that'd be great. If there's a topic in the future you'd love me to cover, hit me up. It's David Mackay V on all the platforms. And beyond that, we have been standing on the shoulders of giants. Thank you. <laughs>